The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to P.I.'s Declassified, an inside look at the world of private investigators. Your host is Francie Kaler, a noted private investigator. Francie and her guests take you behind the scenes and into the genuine, sometimes gritty business of investigation. You'll hear stories from the trenches with plenty of surprises. Here's your host, Francie Kaler. Good morning. It's again, private investigators and P.I.'s Declassified. So, you know that private investigators frequently come in contact with forensic psychologists, and when it concerns psychological testing or evaluation for either a civil or a criminal case, but did you also know that forensic psychologists also develop terrorist profiles, and they evaluate candidates for political asylum? I met Dr. Ruben Weissman who developed a counterterrorism strategy for the Bush administration, and it was sub- subsequently adopted by the FBI. Good day, Dr. Weissman. Hello. Thank you so much. Now, where are you calling in from? Uh, Santa Monica, uh, Los Angeles. Okay, so we're at least in the same neighborhood. Yes. Um, but I, as you know, this show goes um, has a wide distribution. It goes all over the world. So I know you were born in Israel. Can you talk about that a little bit and how you got from there to what you're doing now? Okay. It's a rather a long uh, journey, but uh, it began with, uh, as you said, being born in Israel. Um, and as was expected of everyone uh, in my cohorts, uh, we all served in the military. I ended up um, volunteering for a... Um, Naval uh, Officers Academy, and uh, when graduated, I was promptly placed on a ship, um, and uh, thereafter was uh, involved in um, counterterrorism activity at the time, um, primarily with the northern border with uh, Lebanon. Mm-hmm. And that was in like the late '80s and early '90s. Actually, it was the late uh, '70s and early late '80s. Okay. And then you moved on to become a supervisor of, um, of the t- Yes. Well, a few years um, later, I had, um, had uh, been recruited by the Israeli government. Um, they have an agency that deals with terrorism prevention that, unlike um, counterterrorism, is not an agency that is dedicated to pursuing terrorists but is actually an agency that is designed to um, create preventive measures that would make uh, terrorist attacks less likely and more difficult. So in that role, I was um, appointed uh, supervisor in a region of uh, the western U.S. Um, I was stationed in Los Angeles at the time, and uh, I covered 
also parts of Mexico, uh, being that um, as a young child I had learned to speak Spanish. Hmm. I was uh, selected to do that as well. And how many languages do you speak? Well, fluently, I think three, if you count English as one of them. Okay, we can count English. (laughs) Okay, that's interesting. So then, uh, so uh, at some point you left the Israeli government, and what happened then? Well, I was uh, studying psychology, and I became interested in the nexus of psychology, human psychology and terrorism. And I started um, studying it uh, independently and uh, writing articles that during the early 90s uh, nobody paid attention to because terrorism at the time in the U.S. was something that was happening very far away to um, Mm -hmm. other people. Right. So I kept on doing that. um, And my mentors and supervisors at the time always promised me that there would be a day when someone is going to notice. And fortunately for you, that came. Unfortunately for everybody else, it came as well. Yes. um, September 11th happened. Um, Unbeknownst to me, a colleague of mine who had gone to a graduate program in psychology with me uh, was at the time working at Sandia National Laboratories in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Mm-hmm. And uh, that that team that she was uh, a, a part of received an order from the uh, George W. Bush White House right. uh, to study terrorism, and um, they were looking for help. And she remembered at that time that uh, we had met and that I uh, had some expertise in this area. So I got invited. And so by that time, you had your Ph.D. in psychology. Is that right? Yes, I've been, yes, yeah. I've been practicing by then. And that, you must have been amazed, weren't you, to get that calling? Uh, yes, I was very surprised. Yeah. I mean, I mean that's quite, a, quite something to say about your expertise and your background and your education to be called in to do something like that. Well, I, I honestly admit that when I was invited um, to talk to the team at Sandia National Laboratories, I thought that I was going to come and offer my help from my expertise. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in January, I think it was uh, 2000, no, um, yeah, 2002. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, I came to the laboratories and spent the whole day with the team and presented my ideas. Um, and I was offered a grant from the U.S. Department of Defense and a grant from the U.S. Department of Energy on the spot, uh, something that is unheard of. And I'm I was sure. told, uh, go home and uh, <laughs> uh, produce a study, and we want um, your results. And so... Um, I was rather uh, surprised and astonished at that, uh, and uh, obviously very humbled, but I accepted the the challenge. For sure, so, honored as well. Uh, yes, uh, absolutely. I was, I was sent back home with a grant, and uh, also with guaranteed access to uh, data that was collect- collected over many years. Um, 
about terrorism. And so I sat for the next two years, and in April 2004, I presented my um, <clears throat> my paper to the laboratories, and it was taken uh, thereafter immediately to the White House and presented there. So, uh, Dr. Weissman, did you have to get a, a secret clearance, a top secret clearance, to have access to this information? Actually, no. It was all uh, open source and... Um, uh, obviously, what I had to contribute was a result of my own experiences and my own study. Uh, so there was nothing clandestine or secret about what I was doing. Okay. So, no, I didn't need any. So I'm wondering uh, how much of this was based, of your um, viewpoints was based on your research or based on your personal experiences? Uh <laughs> It's hard to say. I think that there was a merging of probably all of that. My experience in my military uh, service uh, doing counterterrorism um, and the kinds of uh, things that um, someone who uh, is in the front lines pursuing terrorists needs, and also from the experiences of uh, creating protocols and um, preventive uh, measures against potential terrorist attacks mm-hmm. uh, for the Israeli government. And ultimately, as a psychologist, I think that all of those um, came to to be combined in, in what I had proposed. And um, I guess they liked it because um, the um, paper that I submitted and subsequent um, articles that I published were adopted by the FBI Academy uh, into its uh, official curriculum. Yeah. I am, as far as I, I was told, um, the CIA has uh, taken a piece of um, what I had uh, written uh, to help them in their pursuit of Osama bin Laden. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, that's uh, as far as I can tell. Interesting. What so fascinating. So today, though, you have you run a counseling center in Santa Monica, yes. and what and what does that? What do you do there? Well, this is more a run of a mill um, practice where I, I treat patients and I um, I um, supervise other uh, therapists who also provide uh, psychological services. Uh, but there's a portion of that um, that practice that is dedicated also to forensic uh, work. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, there lies another area of interest of mine that I had over the years developed as well um, that you may want to ask about. I do want to ask about that because, um, as I mentioned at the top of the show, we get exposed all the time to forensic psychologists that are doing, say, evaluations on a criminal defendant or maybe uh, something to do with uh, an accident on a civil case or something like that. Do you do those kind of evaluations? I rarely participate with the criminal courts. I I do get involved in um, evaluations for civil uh, cases periodically. but an area that I had uh, more interest in and was, again, uh, recruited by a, an attorney uh, involved um, psychological evaluations for immigration courts. 
Yes, and and you and I had talked about that when I, when we met in Santa Barbara. Um, these are the evaluations you do on a political asylum candidate to see if it's a yes. real situation. Right. The, well, there are, there are essentially two types of evaluations, and there's a great deal of variance within each uh, category. But there is a category of uh, persons who are uh, being adjudicated for immigration violations mm. uh, who are claiming uh, hardship to uh, U.S. qualifying relatives. Um, okay. And um, that is one evaluation uh, to uh, determine to the extent possible and to try to predict what will happen to the qualifying relatives of the alien that is being adjudicated by uh, federal immigration courts if uh, the alien were to be removed from the country. So uh, can, you, yeah, give, can you give us an example of a situation like that? Oh, yes. Uh, as a matter of fact, the, the majority of undocumented uh, uh, aliens, as they're called, uh, come into the country from south of the border, usually <clears throat> at a, a relatively young age, and uh, oftentimes they stay in the country. They mm-hmm. meet someone else, and they have a family and sire children, and uh, subsequently they form what is in the legal terminology deemed a split family. Mm-hmm. The adults are uh, usually, at least one of them, undocumented alien uh, who is deemed by immigration uh, authorities inadmissible, and their children are, by constitution, um, U.S.-born citizens. And so the family is split. And should such a person uh, who is an undocumented alien come to the attention of uh, immigration authorities, mm-hmm. um, then they would have to render a decision. Uh, the courts consider this type of decision um, a matter of um, uh, discretion of the court. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what is weighed by immigration courts are two competing demands, uh, constitutional protections from hardship to U.S.-born citizens, usually minors, but not always, mm-hmm. uh, against, against the interest of um, the U.S. society to keep out people who violated uh, rules of immigration, such as the parents, usually. Sure. So there are two competing uh, interests, uh, and the court has to decide. And oftentimes they rely on a psychological evaluation of uh, the qualifying relatives, which are U.S.-born citizens, to see if they would be harmed if their um, qualifying relative, uh, if their relative, who is an undocumented alien, were to be removed. Mm-hmm. And, so, and the evaluation, some... <clears throat> so the evaluation involves um, the relationship between the qualifying relatives and the alien. Um, and uh, attempts to predict what would happen uh, in the absence of the alien or if the uh, qualifying relatives were to accompany the alien back to the country of origin. Okay, and qualifying relatives means what? Uh, These are usually relatives who are connected by blood or otherwise by an important relationship, usually the children of uh, undocumented alien, but not exclusively, who stand to be adversely affected by the removal from the country of um, an undocumented alien that they are related to. 
Okay, so we had a situation in Northern California about three years ago, I believe, uh, of a mother that was being deported, and she had teenage children that were born here. So that would be an example of that kind of a situation. Exactly. Okay. And then you also, when people are asking for political asylum, they go back to their own country where they're, they're in danger, that would be considered as well? Yes, this is a second type of evaluation, and that involves asylum. Asylum is essentially a petition of a person who had come into the United States and is afraid for their lives because of persecution in their country of origin. Mm-hmm. Persecution can be for a variety of reasons, for racial uh, discrimination, political reasons, um, sexual orientation, um, ethnic um, mm. reasons, and the likes. Uh, but the common uh, thread is that persons who escaped their country of origin and came uh, seeking asylum in the U.S. oftentimes tell a story about what happened to them and what was done to them in their country of origin, <clears throat> but they usually have very little um, evidence to support their claims. And so I the see. courts oftentimes find themselves um, having to adjudicate a case with very little evidentiary material to base the decision upon. Mm-hmm. Well, what kind of ev- I'm sorry, what kind of evidence would you be looking for? Documentation or, or interviews right. or what? Well, the court would probably be interested in uh, documentation of any kind of, um, any kind of threat or danger uh, to mm-hmm. the lives of the person. However, oftentimes where persons are being persecuted for ethnic uh, reasons, racial reasons, political reasons, uh, the authorities that pursue the individuals don't necessarily leave a paper trail for of sure. their actions. Yeah. And oftentimes these things go unnoticed, undetected, and unreported. And so oftentimes persons who had been persecuted in their countries of origin uh, have very little to show for as far as evidence. Yeah. And so this is where the psychological evaluation comes into, into play because... Um, in the psychology of pe- people who were persecuted, oftentimes you see the marks in the way in which they are behaving, in the way in which they feel. Uh, primarily, the um, telltale of persecution is in post-traumatic stress. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I, I could see maybe for, where somebody from that was their country of origin was Russia, and they were gay, would be persecuted perhaps, and would want to go someplace besides Russia. Okay. Interesting. Fascinating. Uh, I had no idea that this, um, I'm probably not alone, but um, no idea that this kind of uh, an evaluation existed. So are there a number of those that you do, Dr. Weissman? Uh, Yes. As a matter of fact, I I conduct a few every year. Um, I imagine that there's many more than uh, that do the same, and I'm not the only one, and probably... Uh, many more that need these kinds of evaluations to support mm-hmm. their claims. Um, I, I have to admit that when I started uh, doing all of this, um, I was uh, looking for references for those who had done anything of this sort before me, and I found nothing um, at the time when I was asked to participate in this uh, process with the legal system. There were no precedents uh, to speak of, and so I had to... I kind of create the protocol by myself. 
Well, and, so, I, and I actually suspect there are immig- lots of immigration attorneys out there that don't even know this exists. Yes, I imagine that's the case. So maybe we're providing a service today, but we, so some of those attorneys will listen to this show. I hope so. Yes, me too. All right, so let's go back to the terrorism part. You have, uh, you've recently, well, what, three years ago, um, authored a book called The Book of Terrorism. And I have to tell you, it's so interesting. And one of the, the ways you start out in this book, and uh, people can get it right on Amazon or elsewhere? Yes. Okay. So the book of terrorism. And Dr. Weissman, please spell your name so that people who are looking for this book will be able to access it. Okay. Um First name is Ruben, like the sandwich. Okay. <laughs> R-E-U-B-E-N. And uh, last name is uh, Weisman Sachor, that's the full name. V as in Victor, A-I. S as in Sam. M as in Mary, A. N as in November. Then there's a dash. Then there's T as in Tom. Z as in Zebra. A. C-H-O-R. Uh, it's Romeo, and uh, it's not my fault. Uh, I didn't it's give myself the name. <laughs> it's not your fault. Um, no. And how do, how do the hyphen, hyphenated names work in Israel? Um, oh, that's a story in and of itself. Um, it is? Yes. Okay, is it a long story? <laughs> uh, so, uh, I was born Ruben Weissman. Uh, when I was a young child, my parents were sent by the Israeli government to Argentina uh, for a mission of four years. And they required everyone to translate their names to Hebrew names. And so my parents chose Sahor as the translation of Weissman. So thereafter, I was Ruben Sahor for a few years. Um, and upon return back to Israel later on, my parents decided that they liked both names, and so they hyphenated them. And so I, I was stuck with both. And and both names mean the same thing? Essentially. Weissman, I think, means either wise man or white man. Uh, the original translation in, uh, from German had undergone some iterations, uh, from German to Russian, from Russian to Spanish, mm-hmm. and from Spanish to Hebrew. So I have no idea what it was originally. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and Sahor means white in Hebrew. Okay. Okay. All right. Interesting. All right. Um, so anyway, back to your book. You call okay. you say being a terrorist is not easy. And why do you say that? Uh, because I think that um, many of us um, who live our daily lives and think of terrorists, we think of them in terms of what um, um, we are fed with um, uh, the media depiction of what terrorists do and and how they are glorified in so many different ways. In reality, being a terrorist is very, very difficult. Oftentimes, persons who commit to committing an act of terrorism are acting alone with very little support. Uh, They oftentimes um, take tremendous risks. Um, They're usually very poorly trained and poorly prepared. And so the endeavor is extremely difficult. Hmm. Okay, so uh, 
I guess we often see, I mean, all we see is the news. So um, they're living out on with no resources. Is this real? There are no resources. They're living hand to mouth uh, out in the desert someplace or in the, in the mountains, which are very barren. Is that true or is that just hype? Uh, not necessarily so. And I think that in the climate that we live in nowadays, most terrorists uh, that are recruited, what we call here homegrown, mm-hmm. are people who live their lives wherever they do, um, oftentimes, but not always in the margins, um, are recruited over the Internet, uh, but they're not offered adequate training uh, and adequate resources necessarily. They oftentimes have to work alone in secrecy. Um, and I think that uh, the point I'm making in saying that being a terrorist is not easy is to kind of like uh, sober up the um, ideas that had begun to be promulgated right after September 11th, where the Secretary of Homeland Security at the time, Tom Ridge, was fantasizing about uh, terrorists um, uh, dust uh, croppers, um, dusting large population areas with radioactive materials, and things that were so far-fetched and so unrealistic okay. uh, that it, it was necessary to um, appeal to some a more realistic perspective on what uh, we can expect from terrorists to try to do. Interesting, because uh, you're talking about, I guess, the person that we, like you say, gets recruited from the Internet, where... I think probably a lot of people, me included, uh, when I think of a terrorist, I think of what's going on in Syria with ISIS. Right. Yeah. You know what? We need to take a break. I want to get into this further. We'll be right back, Dr. Zuckweisman. Sure. Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call 1-800-350-CALI. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on P.I.'s Declassified. American Heroes Network is a program for and about our American veteran heroes and their families. Join host Gary Ray as he shows what is being done to help our veterans and showcase the companies and organizations that are helping our veterans and their families rebuild their lives. Listen for American Heroes Network, live and powered by the Voice America Variety Channel, every Tuesday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time. 
Have you found the beauty inside of you? Join Bonnie Bonadeo each week for Beauty Inside and Out. We'll explain how beauty plays a part in everybody's lives. Our guests are makeup artists, hairdressers, and doctors. But we'll also feature holistic and wellness specialists and spiritual advisors. You can find that beauty inside and express it to its fullest on the outside. Tune in to Beauty Inside and Out every Thursday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. Dr. Ruben Weissman developed the counterterrorism strategy for the Bush administration. Dr. Weissman, uh, we're just talking about terrorists, and you know we have we hear about the lone wolf we, periodically um, that usually comes out of the United States. But what is the profile of a terrorist? Well, or are th- obviously, obviously, this is a complex question, and um, um, it would be uh, probably. Uh, requiring a lot more um, detail than what we could probably um, entertain in a program as short as this. Right. Uh, but generally, um, we tend to think of this um, in terms of um, the psychological profile. Uh, we think about the group affiliation, nationality, um, and uh, membership in, in other organizations. Um, and the kind of um, target and the kind of audience that uh, terrorists are seeking. So the profile is not a unitary uh, 10-word definition. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, I think that it would probably be best to try to focus more on the psychological profile of the terrorist, which is the area where I think I have more to offer than in, in other aspects. Okay. Um Generally, in my studies, um, what had come to be, um, um, I don't know if confirmed, but at least uh, supported, uh, is the idea that most terrorists appear normal people um, and without any uh, serious psychopathological uh, disorders. Okay. But with a configuration, a psychological configuration, we sometimes talk about in terms of a personality or character or character organization that is, um, by um, its definition, narcissistic. And I would like to, if possible, explain that when we say a narcissistic character organization, we're not speaking necessarily in a way that is often used in a common nomenclature that narcissism equates um, egocentric or selfish. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, usually, usually quite the opposite. Uh, people who are narcissistic are emotionally self-sufficient. In the book, I uh, give uh, quite a description of how this uh, character evolves. Um, and um, I give um, a... a, a description of how a person 
ends up finding themselves um, preferring an emotional, self-sufficient style. And as a consequence, they are more likely to also be easily recruited into terrorism. So what what components, what, what appeal, well, how do I even put this? Uh, how are people recruited? Are there different ways or uh, do they target a certain individual or group or profile or personality uh, to recruit or to lure into the terrorist uh, entity? Well, I believe that uh, terrorist organizations, particularly those that um, uh, utilize the Internet and other mediums, are keenly aware of the kinds of uh, character organizations that seem to uh, be more drawn into uh, their organizations and drawn to their message by virtue of promising specialness, uniqueness, and notoriety. One of the most important motives for people who are narcissistically organized is that, as I mentioned before, um, the emotional self-sufficiency requires that the person has to create and generate their own emotional gratification. And one of the common ways by which people gratify, gratify themselves is by being known, uh, by becoming notorious. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there is a um, an industry of recruitment that promises specialness and notoriety mm. um, that, that is uh, exploiting precisely these kinds of character traits and therefore is also very successful. So, Dr. Weissman, if I had a son, I guess it doesn't have to be a son, it could also be a daughter, there's women that have gone over as well uh, to associate with terrorists, but if I had a child that... Um, that I was concerned about? What kinds of things would I look for if they were getting involved in uh, looking at terrorist, terrorist activities? Well, I think that um, one of the precursors for recruitment is that um, um, oftentimes the terrorism recruiters try to isolate the potential recruits from their environments so that they would be more readily influenced by mm-hmm. the message, and less um, affected by counter-message, counter-messaging from others. Uh, so isolation is definitely a sign to be concerned with. Um, not exclusively, but uh, definitely um, one of the things to be concerned with. Um, obviously, nowadays the Internet serves as the primary medium by which uh, recruitment occurs. So a great deal of fascination and a great deal of time spent on the Internet combined with isolation from uh, society and from social contact mm-hmm. would be definitely a reason to be concerned. Okay. And if I were a parent that, say, my son, say I have a, say I have a 20-year-old son that seems to uh, be consumed with what's going on in the Middle East, perhaps, and consumed with what's going on with Syria, what would I do about it? <laughs> As a parent? <laughs> As a parent, right. <laughs> As a parent myself, I can say that I would worry a great deal. Yeah. And most likely I would try to, as much as I can, to speak to my son or my daughter about um, 
what is going on with them and hopefully try to engage them in a conversation that would, if nothing else, offer another perspective, another point of view. Uh, at, and hopefully that would resonate with with my children in a way that um, would give them um, a pause or at least an opportunity to consider what it is that they want to get themselves involved in. Mm-hmm. And is there a, a particular age group that's more susceptible than others? It varies quite a bit, but generally men tend to be more readily recruited uh, than women, and generally uh, people at their late teens and um, early adults tend to be more readily recruited. Um, uh, people who tend to become involved in other things, school um, and life and, and, and work, tend to then become consumed with other purposes, and so uh, this may not resonate as, as powerfully as it would if they are fresh out of uh, high school and just ready to take on life and without any particular purpose or interest in mind, that's a population that may become more vulnerable. So somebody that's idealistic and is looking oh, yes. for... Yeah, okay. Yes. All right. Yes. Okay. Looking for uh, a this... purpose. Yeah, a purpose in life. Yes. So, you know, uh, Dr. Weisman, there, there's been so much conversation about Benghazi and what's been going on surrounding Benghazi and whether it should have happened or shouldn't have happened. What do you, what do you think about that? What's your comments? I'm not sure. I, I, I don't claim to know exactly what happened. Um, there seemed to have been at least uh, a patent failure to protect the, the people who were serving in Benghazi. Mm-hmm. Um, oftentimes uh, failures are orphan uh, but as I've learned from my years of work in terrorism prevention is that oftentimes all agencies that are involved in uh, prevention find themselves one step behind terrorists uh, because technology changes because the means can vary because the strategies could change, the sources of recruitment are not stable, Um, the motives of terrorists change periodically. Mm -hmm. It is very, very difficult to know beforehand who is going to strike when and how. So how do people protect themselves? How do countries protect themselves? Uh, Well, It depends. A country like the United States is a a country that, from a uh, terrorist perspective, is a target-rich environment. Every mall, every movie theater, uh, every bus that goes on the road is Mm -hmm. a potential target. Every airplane of the thousands that uh, fill the air every day are all potential targets. So it is, uh, in my mind, uh, foolish and foolhardy to try to protect each and every uh, one of the targets um, with uh, heavy military presence or police presence. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think it's uh, more important to try to identify who the terrorists are, what their interests are, what resonates with them and their particular ideology, and how best to meet those challenges and try as best as possible to uh, not disrupt life uh, for other people. 
Mm-hmm. Um, one example of such is, uh, for example, the uh, pre-flight interview that is routinely conducted in Israel that is designed to basically screen for potential challenges and risks. Mm-hmm. Um, it's done on to everyone, and it's been studied and rehearsed and practiced so much that it's um, very, very quick and very thorough and very successful at preventing uh, airline um, terrorism. Um, I think that something like this could be implemented in the United States as well. And if uh, other targets uh, become um, um, preferred, like the airlines had been, mm-hmm. uh, then uh, something similar could be adopted to other, um, other mediums. Interesting. Is Israel the only one that has a uh, the only country that has a pre flight interview like that? That you know. Well, I, I think that other countries have um, pre flight interviews. Um, uh, I do occasionally fly out of the U.S. and uh, even within domestic uh, flights, there are some questions being asked. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think that um, it's as thorough and as complete and as um, well-studied and guided process as it could be. But it's a step in the right direction. Um, but it's only part of a, a complex set of um, measures that, that exist. Um, I think that in Israel um, there's a, a great deal of uh, intelligence work trying to collect intelligence about terrorism much before it even becomes a, a, an immediate threat. Um, and I, I know that the FBI and the CIA have been hard at work trying to catch up with this. And as can be discerned from the successes of um, of past few years, um, I would say that they have caught up with, with what is done in Israel as well. And, of course, it doesn't help that um, the United States and, and some other countries are so large and have so many borders that are um, hard to control. Right. Well, I think that uh, each aspect of, of the U.S. has to be considered in its own right. Um, and I think that the border, the way it is at the moment, is highly porous and probably very dangerous. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, I think that a, a challenge and a threat no less concerning is, for example, the drug war uh, south of the border in Mexico right. because uh, it creates large swaths of land that are lawless and without any control where terrorists could um, create bases, and could create uh, launching pads to launch attacks onto the U.S. proper with very great ease and without much interference. Um, so I think that there are many dimensions to the threats that um, we could be facing. Mm-hmm. Um, and the border is one of them, and, and there should be some attention um, dedicated to that. So if you were responsible, Dr. Weissman, for um, setting up a protocol and a border control area for the United States, what would that include? Besides the pre-flight interview, what else would you do? Uh, You mean a border control 
Uh, are we speaking now about the, the actual physical border with Mexico or Canada? Uh, the physical, well, the border control, but also the the both shores on either side of the United States, the Atlantic and Pacific um, areas that can be easily accessed just about by just about anybody. Oh, that's a big job. I don't know that I wouldn't be willing to take that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> who was the president that said that if I'm appointed, I will not run? Yeah, right. <laughs> nominated, okay. I will not run. Well, what um, would you do about what do you what would you do about the Mexican border? I think that um, uh, it would probably have to improve dramatically, both in terms of how porous the border is, and also in in terms of the intelligence that mm-hmm. we have um, about who is crossing the border. Uh, I think that I would seek to develop very intimate relationships with the coyotes. Coyotes, these are the people who transfer the illegal immigrants across the border. Okay. Because they would be my eyes and ears on both sides of the border, and they would be able to tell me uh, I was approached by such and such person or such and such organization, and um, these are not my typical um, poor people from a rancho in Mexico who is trying to find work in San Diego, but instead, this is someone who's up to no good, they have a lot of money, they, they have a different accent, or they don't speak Spanish at all, um, watch out for those. Mm-hmm. And I would want to have that relationship established, because um, I think it would be another tire that currently does not exist, because uh, they are deemed our enemy. Uh, but that would be a, a, a tire of protection that I would like to develop in addition to the contact that we have with the Mexican government and and with their police and with their border patrol and military, I would like to also form very close uh, and good relations with the coyotes. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, uh, that's fascinating. Of course, uh, having a good relationship with the government, what do you do, however, when a government's corrupt? or the people that are enforcing the government's objectives are corrupt. And, of course, that is all rumors, but that's what we hear about Mexico. Uh, well, some would say that all governments are corrupt. Um, okay. I think it's a, it maybe is a matter of degrees. Okay. Um, I, I think we work with uh, reality, not with what we wish we worked with. Mm-hmm. Um, Mexico is, is Mexico, and this, this is our neighbor to the south, and that's what we have to deal with. Right. And because it's, a, it's a, a system that has a great deal of corruption, then you have to operate within that system in the best way you can. And I, I don't want to sound politically incorrect, but uh, if in Mexico, in order to get something done, you have to bribe, then uh, you bribe. Okay. Um, because every every government has an agenda. Well, of course. Um, yeah. Of course. Yeah. So, uh, Dr. Weissman, do you have a story you could tell us that is memorable out of your um, your research and your contacts that you would like to share with our our listeners? I have a lot of stories. I don't know which <laughs> would you prefer. <laughs> you just pick your favorite. Pick your favorite. 
I have a story that is uh, from the time of my military service that I think was very instructive. Uh-huh. Because it, I think, shaped me at the time uh, into understanding that in order to deal with terrorism, you must profile. You must profile in a way that would help a person. At the time, I was a commander of a ship on patrol in the Israeli-Lebanese uh, border. Uh, it, you must have that in order to guide your decisions when you're out in the field or out in the, in the open waters about what to do. Mm-hmm. The story involves a, um, um, a time when I was patrolling uh, the border between, the maritime border between Lebanon and Israel, and I was called to uh, intercept a, a target that seemed to be um, directing itself to the Israeli shores. And at the time, we had credible uh, intelligence warnings that such uh, fast craft carrying terrorists would land on Israeli shores and would um, carry out a terrorist attack. And uh, all the information that I had that I was receiving from the electronic means and what I could see in the binoculars as I was approaching the target seemed to confirm that what I was about to engage was indeed a terrorist target. And I, I was ready to wage battle and to destroy the target or to kill everyone on board. Um, and at the last moment as I approached, I changed my mind and I decided not to shoot and not to kill. Uh, instead, I took the, um, the people on that beautiful boat that I just intercepted uh, as captives and for interrogation um, back in headquarters. Um, turns out that I was right. But at the time, I could not have known this. It was only based on the fact that I had a profile that I was working off of, and something about this particular target was different. As it turns out, uh, these were um, four or five young men, innocent, to be sure, who had gone from Lebanon, from Junia, to uh, uh, Cyprus, uh, to play in the casino, and um, they apparently won a lot of money, and somebody that owed them money couldn't pay them back, so they gave them a speedboat, a beautiful white and nickel um, speedboat mm-hmm. um, that they now received. And after a weekend um, playing in the casino, they had to return back to Junia in Lebanon, and they didn't have enough time to sell that boat, so they decided that instead of selling it and cashing in, they would simply sail it back to Junia mm-hmm. in the open water. It's not a long distance. I think it's like uh, five or six hours um, uh, at sea. Mm-hmm. Um, and they had no experience in, in um, navigation at sea. But they basically understood that uh, Lebanon was east uh, of uh, Cyprus, and so they directed their uh, speedboat due east mm-hmm. and decided that as they come close to the shore, they will identify Junia, and they're going to get back home that way. Uh, unbeknownst to them, there's a current that pushes from north to south and a wind that pushes the same. So when they came close to the shores, 
they saw the Carmel Mountain dropping sharply onto the um, Mediterranean Sea. Hmm. And it looked every bit as the Shuf Mountain looks like as it drops onto the Mediterranean Sea in Beirut. Hmm. So they thought that they were seeing Beirut when they actually were seeing Haifa, much, much south to Beirut. And so they directed their boat a little bit north of, a little bit left of uh, what they thought was Beirut to where Junia would be. And what they indeed were actually pointing at was the city of Akko in Israel. So they were not aware that they were crossing the international waters <laughs> right. and that they were presenting oh with what was considered by me at the time as a legitimate target for destruction. <laughs> and they, they just uh, <laughs> willy-nilly just uh, went into it uh, as if um, knowing nothing. Um, lucky for me, there was still a bit of daylight when I, I came close enough and I saw that the men were not prepared for a terrorist attack. They were wearing shorts and uh, Bermuda shirts or whatever right. they were wearing. And so I decided to change um, engagement orders on the spot because they didn't, didn't fit the yeah. profile. It just didn't feel right, did it? Right. It, it, they didn't fit the profile. Yeah. And, and that's when I learned my lesson. Obviously, a few days later, uh, these men were returned to Junior with their beautiful boat. Um, and um, I learned the lesson by saving some innocent people's lives. And I think that that was a very important lesson for me to learn, that we need to um, profile terrorists so that we can spare the innocent people. That's a really good point. Well, that's exactly where we should leave this show, Dr. Weissman. This is very enlightening. Thank you so much. We are at the end of our hour, if you can believe that. We could talk for a long time. Um, but thank you so much. I appreciate you being on the show and your information is valuable. And for anybody that is interested in contacting Dr. Weissman, his email or his uh, website is counselingcenterofsantamonica.com. So for the rest of you, uh, if you're interested in his book, The Book of Terrorism by Dr. Ruben Weissman. And thank you, doctor. Join me again next week when we declassify more real stories from real investigators. Every Thursday morning, 12 noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific, it's PIs Declassified. I'm Francie Kaler. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to PIs Declassified with your host, Francie Kaler. Tune in every Thursday at noon Eastern Time. That's 9 a.m. for you West Coast listeners. P.I.'s Declassified explores stories of deceit, mystery, and detectives unraveling the truth. Every Thursday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific Time, here on the Voice America Variety Channel. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.